politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for what matters in the way it matters at the time it matters. If that's your motto, if that is your goal, this is your place. This is your home. Daniel Horowitz back here today for Wednesday, December the 7th, the day that will live on in infamy to this very day, the 81st anniversary of the Pearl Harbor bombing. Uh, That was a time when we had a united sense of purpose, common cause. We understood good from evil, right from wrong. We knew our friends, we knew our enemies, and therefore, with that moral clarity, we knew what to do about it as a nation. Today, we don't yet really have our Pearl Harbor moment of clarity, uh, because the problem is we have a bombing within, and it's a subtle, slow cook. Um, It's not any one incident And we have a lot of confusion, and confusion in our own ranks. And it's time we realize that the Republican Party is not our friend. They are an enemy, but they're a nuanced enemy in the sense that in order to survive, they need us more so than we need them. We don't need them because there's nothing they do for us anyway. It's time we treat the GOP like a wayward slave, not a master. Not something like, you better get on their plantation and you support Kevin McCarthy and you support Mitch McConnell and you vote for them in the general election. No, no, no. We're the ones who say, you better <clears throat> abide by our policies, our red lines. Otherwise, we're not going to vote for you. And we're going to work parallel on our own strategies. And what you're seeing is, it works Rather than throwing our panties at Kevin McCarthy as other conservatives wanted to do, so far, he fought two of the items we wanted. Well, one and a half. On the NDAA, they got out the vaccine mandate in the military. Should have been done a year ago. And this demonstrates how easy it could have been to do it a year ago. And then now, finally, at least publicly, half-heartedly, he is saying, I want the budget bill to be kicked into next year, not an omnibus. So that's progress. But that's progress we wouldn't have gotten and will not continue to get unless we hold their feet to the fire. Not like, oh, we're trying to help you defeat the Democrats, but the Democrats, no, no, no. This is what we expect. This is what we demand. We call the balls and strikes at a federal level, most importantly in the state level, on the right people, the right action items. That's what we're all about here. Everything else is just noise. So I want to elaborate on this, the speaker's fight, the budget fight coming up. We're going to have a very special guest on (laughs) to talk about all of that and what we can do not to leave things on the table. Not to leave things on the table. First, our sponsor today, QPGoatSoap.com. QP stands for Quinn Pittman, a 15-year-old Blaze homeschooling Christian family Uh, But he's a 15-year-old homeschooling kid that makes his own goat soap together with his mom, Dana, and his sister, Grace, and dad, Ben. They have a family farm in Volusia County, Florida, where they make the healthiest, best-smelling and feeling soap to use, uh, whether it's in the shower, whether it's men's soap for shaving, whether it's female scents. You go online and you can see in their store all sorts of 
uh, options. By the way, makes a really good Christmas present as well. They have Christmas wrapping uh, that you could request. It's made with palm oil, rich in vitamins, unlike the stuff from Zest and uh, Dove that is just unhealthy, pro-inflammatory, and funds the cartel. Don't fund the cartel with your body. Look, this is something we all need. I mean, you can't get away from soap. And are you going to go with your values and go with your health, or are you going to go with the cartel? Well, if the answer is the former, go to qpgoatsoap.com. Again, stands for Quinn Pittman. Promo code Daniel for 10% off all the items in the store. Would you rather go with the depraved dove or QP Goat Soap, natural, and really represents the life we want to live, living the life of a conservative, not just speaking as a conservative, qpgoatsoap.com. So folks, I'll tell you what keeps me up at night. Outcomes are for God. What's going to happen is going to happen. But what keeps me up at night is that we don't fight for things that we could so easily fight for. Sometimes it looks like, Daniel, this is never going to happen. Well, it's only never going to happen because we don't have a movement smartly, articulately, and passionately demanding very specific things and focusing very specific pressure on the issues and people in the direction to which it needs to be focused. We need a hostile takeover. Not like, hey, let's establish some relationships. No. On the outside, we, we, we punch them in the face. That's how we need to treat the Republican Party. It's that simple. And it shows you what could have been done. See, now it's a little bit too little too late. Because the people who were forced to get the shots got the shots. The people who were kicked out of the military were kicked out of the military. But we could have accomplished this on last last year, fiscal year 2022's NDAA. But you see, when you fight for it, you get it. Same thing with the omnibus bill. If we make certain red lines, and then in the states do the same thing, make these red lines the most important legislative sessions of our time, we could totally make a difference. I feel like we're leaving so much on the table. Everyone's focused on electoral politics, but legislative politics is where it all happens. And when I say legislative, I don't just mean the legislative, the executive branches too. You, you could hold them accountable in your respective states. But that requires a mindset that we are not Republicans, and we certainly don't serve them. They serve us. But instead, we have all these talk show hosts and influencers that have all this money that are all about these private little, you know, connections and relationships. Oh, and now I got a relationship with Kevin McCarthy. Oh, I got a relationship with Trump. I have to stand down on this issue. I have to change my longstanding views on this to accommodate this guy. Oh, whoops, my son works for this guy in GOP leadership. So I guess I can't say anything anymore. Not, not only that, I'm going to lambast everyone else who says what I said in, until three minutes ago. That's what it is. And, and the worst thing, folks, is when you have these frauds. See, Boehner had an open, hostile relationship with the conservative media. Whereas McCarthy, the fact that all these guys are kissing his rear end should scare you. Because that means that headed forward on the issues, they won't hold his feet to the fire. They'll apologize for him. 
they'll carry his water, and they'll attack anyone who is trying to hold his feet to the fire. We're all kind of resigned that, yeah, you're, gonna, you're, you're probably going to wind up with him. But without having a fight over and extracting demands from him, you're not going to get any change. And, and, the, and the change in behavior we got until now, even on these issues, were only due to people like Andy Biggs, who's now being attacked bizarrely. By the way, just, just want to get one thing out of the way. Um, one of the things that Andy Biggs is being attacked for is that I think he might have said this publicly, that he voted for Tom Emmer as whip for the number three position. But the reason he did that is kind of like the reason why I say, half tongue in cheek, I support Lisa Murkowski for president. The other option was Jim Banks. Jim Banks is the new Steve Scalise. He's a snake. He pretends to be a conservative, has relationships with conservatives. Someone on his staff is the son of a very prominent conservative talker and voice. And he would be literally the conduit for leadership to get conservatives to stand down. I've ha- I had this problem all along in the administration when Trump was president. You would have – there were two types of friends of mine that would go into the Trump administration. There were those that were like, yeah, Daniel, this is stupid, but like, yeah, whatevs. And then there were those that got all serious about it because it was personal to them. And rather than them holding the line – they served as an ambassador to get conservatives to stand down, holding their feet to the fire. And that's what happens when you have people like Jim Banks. Um, Everyone knows Andy Biggs doesn't support Tom Emmer, but the idea was you would wind up with the same outcome, so let's just make it blatantly so Tom Emmer doesn't have that relationship to get us to stand down. It was a strategic move, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. It doesn't... Andy Biggs is not a secret rhino, he has a hundred percent CR Liberty score. Do you know he was one of the few that voted against the original First Step Act, the jailbreak bill that almost every conservative was uh, co- co- coaxed to in, in, into voting for because Trump bought into that crap. Kevin McCarthy is a fifty-two rating. Give me a break. Then there's this whole business with the convention of the states, which requires its own show. Look, I support it, but I mean. We'll, we'll be dead by the time we get 34 and then 38 states to agree to anything. And then even the things that we're doing are small potatoes and don't speak to the Fourth Reich issues. I disagree fundamentally with the fact that you need 38 states to allow one or two or 10 or 15 conservative states on their own to go their own way. They cannot violate the Constitution. And then we have to go through that arduous process that will take 100 years in order to save ourselves. We don't have time for that. I'm not opposed to it. And I support it. But there are legitimate people that, whether you agree with their arguments or not, and I tend to disagree with their arguments, but in, 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 the, in the eyes of um, kind of the Eagle Forum movement, Phyllis Schlafly, was Phyllis Schlafly a rhino? No, but she, she opposed the Convention of the States. I'm not going to tear people down like Andy Biggs, who opposed the Convention of the States. That has nothing to do with this. So somehow we have to support McCarthy and oppose the people that are fighting for us on the issues that matter at the time they matter in the way they matter because they weren't a fan of the Convention of the States. What what the hell does that have to do with anything? What, and Kevin McCarthy is such a supporter of it? It's just so random. By the way, Thomas Massey violently opposes the Convention of the States. Is he a rhino? Should I I disown him and support Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell now? The reality is 
We all have certain projects, and that's fine. But then certain things happen that make it that I have a lot of projects I push, but now that we're in the Fourth Reich, they're too little too late, and I had to update some of my ideas because they just don't speak to the time, and that's fine. But I'm not going to create needless division among the few conservatives we have in legislatures. The reality is... Some of, some of the, if you take the most conservative guys that are fighting for medical freedom, fighting for the issues that matter, a third of them support the Convention of States, a third of them oppose it, a third of them are indifferent. I'm not going to create a needless division over that um, at this point, even while I still support the idea. We need a lowercase Convention of the States with a, C, a lowercase c, meaning not necessarily Article 5, but the idea that the solution is not in Washington, that you work within the states, work with state interposition. But that shouldn't require 38 states. We need a sanctuary state right now. One state could do that. The more, the better. But with this, you're nothing unless you get 34 and then 38, which the state legislative elections have shown will never get there this past term. States like Nevada and New Mexico that we needed, they gerrymandered into oblivion. You're never going to get the majorities there. And only like one in a thousand Democrats have, has ever voted for it out of the you know 20 or so states that, that voted for it. Whatever. I mean, that requires an entire show in and of itself. I don't want to get caught on that. But 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 it's just so random. Up is down and down is up. So, you know, the, our, our, our strongest votes in the history of this generation, they're the rhinos. If they oppose Kevin McCarthy, what is that? You know, you, you want to have a different strategic vision, that's fine. But to, to rip anyone who doesn't support the vaccines and then rip anyone who doesn't support Ukraine and then rip anyone who doesn't support Kevin McCarthy is just bizarre. You're basically destroying your best people. I mean, who, who does, I mean, I'm trying to think if you add up, okay, which elected officials support McCarthy, support Zelensky and thought the shots were a great idea. Well, I guess that pretty much leaves you with Kevin McCarthy types. Okay. Elise Stefanik, she's now a hero. I, I just don't understand this. But, you know, we're going to do what we do. People will disagree in strategy, family disagreements, and that's fine. That's fine. I'm not going to lambast them in the same way they lambast us, you know, and get that personal, which it should never get that personal. Sometimes you just have to be strategic. You know, like Idaho and Montana are two states where kind of the Phyllis Schlafly component has a lot of seems to have a lot of support, and those are two of the reddest states that have not yet adopted Convention of the States. I'm not going to tear them down because the reality is some of those people are the ones that are going to help us with the interposition right now. If if states like Idaho and Montana did what needs to be done right now on interposition, on medical freedom, on everything, you would make yourselves free of the federal morass without having to get the blue states to agree with you. Which I don't agree that we need to get them. I disagree with the Birchers and the Phyllis Schlafly crowd that somehow the Convention of the States will be used as a tool for, for bad. I just think it's the opposite. It's just not enough. It's too little, too late. It won't And also, we just literally don't have enough states that um, we can ever get the control of the legislature um, based on the intractable partisan divide. See, my whole plan presupposes that half the country is lost and the federal government's lost. I, I agree the solution's outside of Washington, but not that the solution's outside of Washington to somehow fix Washington. I don't think you're ever going to fix it, and I think those states need to do their own thing. So I'm not going to destroy relationships with the people we need to give us that life jacket 
that life vest to stop us from drowning in the Fourth Reich because they don't support that long-term solution. I view the Convention of the States as more like, let's say you had a um, breakaway of 20 to 25 states doing what they want, and you want some sort of stable structure and agreement between them, you kind of use that sort of structure um, as, as a plan forward. But right now, we'll be dead. I mean, we need immediate solutions. And I'm just telling you, go down the list of your top people in Congress, in state legislatures that fight for us on the issues that matter, and there's very few of them, and a good number of them oppose Convention of States. I disagree with their kind of strategy on that, but at the same time, I actually think the time has passed for, for it. I think it's a 1990s solution, and that's fine. I understand a lot of people have put a lot of money and effort into it, but what do you do when now they're blatantly arresting people? They're blatantly, I mean, you got to have an answer for that. Again, I have a lot more to say on that. It's a lot more nuanced. But my point is to tear down a guy like Andy Biggs, and again, you'd have to apply that to Thomas Massey and other people as well over it, is just stupid. just makes no sense. Now, folks, obviously, with people like Kevin McCarthy, we're going to fight for a budget fight, but you know, most likely we're not going to get the budget that our next guest is proposing. So what, what does that mean? More inflation, more debt, and more devaluing of the dollar. The answer is gold. Gold is the world's oldest, most proven form, form of currency. It's there for you when inflation soars, where other assets go sideways. I mean, this has been a horrible year for the stock market. And that's why Birch Gold is so thrilled to introduce a new product that reimagines gold as currency, the gold back. This month, you'll get a free gold back for every 5000 purchase when you convert your existing IRA or 401k into precious metals IRA with Birch Gold by December 22nd. So it works out good for those of you who want to get a Christmas gift. A free gold back um, would be a great Christmas gift to give to a family or friend. Um, Birch Gold will help you own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered account. So text Daniel to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold. Then talk to one of their precious metal specialists. And again, with a purchase of 5000 you will get, if you do this by December 22nd, a free gold back. How cool is that? Once again, text Daniel to 989898 to protect your savings with gold today. You know, one of the things, the interesting things, if you look at, McCarthy has a page on accountability. Accountability measures. And basically, it's kind of a list of, and it's pretty detailed, to his credit, of hearings they want to hold and you go to the covid section it's all about the origins of covid nothing about the response to covid nothing about vaccines and that's by design again so three years after kevin mccarthy whipped and cajoled and beat conservatives into supporting the very thing that created the fourth reich the inflation the debt the lack of freedom everything we're dealing with today died suddenly is from those COVID lockdown bills that he supported. Now they're like, yeah, lockdowns are kind of bad and let's look at the origins of COVID. And even if you look at the origins of COVID, that's very important. But the scope of it is more like, oh, it's China's fault and maybe Fauci funded it. That's not what it is. It's the U.S. military intel apparatus that created it. They're creating many more. They have many more down the pipeline that need to be shut down and the vaccines are are the goal of it, and that's something that Republicans refuse to touch. Kevin McCarthy will never touch it. 
So that's with that. You know, I wrote an article. It went viral all over congressional members and staff. I revisited all of the budget bills and debt ceilings that were passed under Trump. It says in Deuteronomy 28.47, you know, when, when it talks about all the curses that will befall Israel for joining in with uh, idolatry and sin, all of this will befall you, quote, because you did not serve the Lord, your God, with happiness and with gladness of heart when you had an abundance of everything. And that's what it was. We had that trifecta control. Could you imagine the, the political capital with Trump's surprise victory? And they had the House and the Senate with it. And yet, every budget not only failed to cut the Fourth Reich bureaucracies, CDC and, and, and the FBI and all this stuff, it, EPA, dramatically grew the spending levels over Obama's baseline. Everyone. Kevin McCarthy was majority leader, floor leader during all of that. And he passed, and I, I, I have all, I come with all the receipts, and then I link to a column I wrote at the time on every one of them. I fought every budget battle since 2010. I have a column to go with it, giving the broader background on it and the gravity of it at the time and how the perfidious it was that it funded everything we 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 that, that was horrible and didn't fund things like the border wall at the time it mattered when they had the power mccarthy did that to us every budget bill that he passed had more democrat support than republican support so they tell us daniel if you don't support him you're helping the democrats somehow this is the line they work with the democrats with a sodomist like relationship they have gay sex with them every second, sometimes literally. You should see what goes on there. And then they're like, if you don't support them, you're helping the Democrats. What are you talking about? It's time to say never rhino. Never rhino. Until we do, we have no leverage over them. And then hold them accountable. You have a speaker fight. You have a primary fight. And then you have the legislative fights and you focus on them. You name names. You name bills, you popularize it. That's what a movement of substance does. You treat them like the slave, not us like the slave, not them like the master. That's the middle ground between being slavishly devoted to the GOP and just instantaneously starting a, a, a new party that doesn't currently exist. And I keep saying that there's a middle ground there. So anyway, my article is widely believed to be one of the reasons Kevin McCarthy finally said, you know what, we, maybe we shouldn't pass an omnibus. Let us deal with it as a GOP majority and rewrite the budget. Thanks to the work we did. So a lot of them will be like, what are you talking about? See, Kevin McCarthy is much better than McConnell. He's now arguing with him. Yeah, only because we finally forced it. No thanks to you. This is what it is. But that's the point. You have to floor the gas pedal when you have that opportunity. And we don't have the same opportunity, but they do control the House. And we're going to talk with our guest about the type of budget we need to pass, but the type of issues that we need to expend that political capital on and have that budget brinkmanship. If, imagine if starting today you actually had a party that said, we will not fund medical fascism, pharma greed, trend, cutting the balls off of children, a border invasion. 
teaching our children that we're racist. FBI arresting political opponents and surveilling the surveillance state, the biomedical state. And you message that to the public? That's the smart play. As opposed to talking about social security. Again, we'll talk about that with Russ Vogt coming up. But you hold them on a, on, on a short leash. But I wanted people to understand how McCarthy and that, and that entire era of leadership, how they screwed us. We are in the position we're in today because those bureaucracies were doubled in funding under Trump's trifecta. And by the way, that doesn't absolve him from the liability of that either. Last time I checked, he had a veto pen, too, that he never used. Um, but, you know, certainly McCarthy was a big part of that. And we're just supposed to ignore that? We're to believe he's going to fight for us with just control of the House when he passed? I, I, I want you to understand, Trump's a Nazi, right? That, that's the Democrat mantra. Trump's a Nazi in their mind. But yet... His budget bills, and that's all that matters, is your budget. That's, that every policy is budget. Every budget bill under Trump's presidency was passed with near unanimous, and sometimes unanimous, Democrat support in one or both chambers. That's astounding. They hated him. Everything about him was horrible, yet they all loved his budgets. They all, they all voted for them. Kevin McCarthy was a part of that. That's why we are where we are today. That when we had that control, when God gave us that abundance, it not only was squandered, it was subverted. And, you know, I I just want to give a couple more examples of this. Glenn Youngkin. I have to find out more details if this is real. But we talked about this guy, Strickland, this owner of a Fredericksburg restaurant who was being raided by the Bureau of Alcohol, whatever, ABC, that's what it's called, literally an ABC agency in, in Virginia, because he, he was serving alcohol without a license. Well, you say, well, Daniel, that's bad. Yeah, but he only had his license suspended last month. Why? Because he didn't follow Ralph Northam's uh, lockdown and social distancing rules. We'll be like, okay, Daniel, well, isn't Glenn Youngkin governor, how do you go a year into his governorship and, and something like that happen? I mean, that's executive branch. How is that? He should control that. And we really, you know, a lot of us tagged Glenn Youngkin and his team on Twitter. A lot of people were doing that. And I, I have to find out if this is real, if it's just like a review of all cases or if he's downright immediately suspending it, terminating it. But but Youngkin put out a statement. I, he didn't mention this this guy, and by the way, he's running for state senate. We're going to have him on the show as a guest tomorrow. A hero that said no, said no to lockdown when it actually mattered. Yeah, now everyone's a hero. But he said, he sounded like, hey, you know, we're going to kind of void out all punitive actions taken in, in you know, enforcement of stay-at-home orders and things like that. The COVID regulations. But it doesn't come if you don't speak up. You have two options. You could apologize for, carry the water for, and make excuses for elected Republicans. Or you could smash them in the mouth and say, what the heck? Why, why, you have control. Why are you doing this? We have a Democrat party. We have blue states. 
that are doing this. It shouldn't happen here. And this happens everywhere. We need to assert our will. State legislative affairs, so few people follow, much fewer than even Congress. But if we actually had movements and created these Liberty Strike Force teams that 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 dogged the legislature and, and wrote publications, put out emails, this group's starting to do this, saying these guys are heroes, these guys, Republicans, are, are rhinos, are zeros, these bills are helpful, these aren't, this is what we need to be doing, you know, drive calls into your legislature, that is a much bigger deal than voting. Especially legislature, much more so than Congress. Most states, they don't have a culture, especially Republicans, getting pressure from the right. The left-wing astroturfed organizations are always involved, but kind of organic, just like random conservative citizens never happens. Very rarely. But like in West Virginia, this idiot Roger Hanshaw, he's the speaker, he was the one that oversaw the worst legislative session the last two years under COVID where we got no good reforms on medical tyranny with Jim Justice being worse than almost any Democrat governor on COVID. He was reelected. Someone challenged him. He was reelected 5330. Um and Craig Blair was reelected as Senate president. They literally have like three Democrats, three Democrats left in the state Senate. It's an 88 to 12 majority in the House. And yet the same rhino leadership. So that was a missed opportunity. But now you gotta fight on the issues. You gotta fight on the issues. Every piece of leverage, leadership elections, primary elections, um, legislative points, bashing them on social media, bashing them on local radio, putting out websites that focus on local politics, it's all of it. It, There's there's no one magic bullet. That's why you can't put an idolatry into one guy, one presidential race, one strategy like Convention of States. It's fine to support it. But it can't be your only thing, especially something that's so long-term when we're going to die by then. Don't let one thing get in the way of a broader vision. But, um, but I do want to get to our guest to flesh out both of these issues, the speaker's race and the budget fight. Now, one of the names that I think all of you need to know, absolutely need to know, is Russ Vote. A lot of us are abused and groomed and just saturated with these names that we all have to care about as if they're the next greatest thing in conservative politics when they're just a bunch of nobodies. The antithesis of that is my friend, my mentor, Russ Vogt. Um, I've learned so much from him over the years. Who is Russ Vogt? You need, to, you need to understand this because he really is the antithesis of everything that's wrong with Washington. Um, Russ has worked in all three branches, Senate, House, White House, obviously he was most recently Trump's OMB director, uh, that's the budget director, he was also a staffer for Mike Pence years ago in the House when he was the leader of conservatives, and he worked for Senator Phil Graham, one of the lead conservative senators in the Senate, and typically people with a resume like that, they become insiders, and they can't reinvent the wheel, don't understand what time it is refuse to fight the battles that matter in the way they matter at the time they matter. And they're just, you know, at, at, at worst, they become totally part of the swamp. At best, they become like all these people we've been talking about today. Rather than a conduit for the outside to hold the fire to the inside, they become a conduit for the inside to neuter any opposition from the outside. Um, Russ right now is the 
head and founder of the Center for Renewing America. Uh, what has he been doing? So you have all these stupid organizations, these boutique shops in Washington, spend a bunch of money, fundraise, and do nothing with it. Here's what he has to show for it. He is leading the fight on the outside against Kevin McCarthy, um, saying, look, we need a change in leadership. And everyone else I know who's similar in terms of background, they created too many relationships, like we talked about, that oh, they, they can't do it, got to stand down. I have too many relationships. I, I don't want to insult anyone. Um, the, the country has to suffer because of my personal relationship. No, he's leading that fight. But also today, he released a budget blueprint. Literally, chapter and verse, over 100-page PDF, goes through all the departments, all of the spending levels, what should be cut, and how you get to a balanced budget in 10 years without focusing so much on Social Security and Medicare becoming a hot potato and distracting from what I call the Fourth Reich issue. So to get into that and more is Russ himself coming back here for the second time, and hopefully not the last. Russ, thanks so much for joining us today at Blaze Media. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Daniel. And just for your audience, no one has a better uh, strategic sense of the of the battlefield at any given moment than Daniel Horowitz. So it's a pleasure to be back with my old friend who I talk with often over the phone and to have one of our conversations over your, your formal broadcast. Sure. And obviously, you know, it's a lot easier to do what I do. I'm a hermit sitting in, in my uh, little office far from D.C., but but you're actually in the belly of the beast and and haven't been taken in by that and that that whole frog in the boiling pot analogy that seems to apply to everyone. You seem to understand exactly what the issues of the time are, and that's what the budget reflects. But before the budget, let's talk about the the speaker's race. Uh, so you know the argument being given is that look, it's a narrow majority. We're scared that the the rhinos will work together with the Democrats to get a Democrat speaker if you don't elect him. He has all these great plans to have all these hearings. Um, You know, the the sooner he's able to start on that and we're able to get settled, we can focus on the substance. Um, We can't have this division. And look, you know, he's he's getting better. I mean, you you, got to admit he's uh, starting to oppose McConnell. He led the fight on the NDAA here, got us the elimination of the vaccine mandate in the military and now he's saying he does want to hold up the omnibus bill so so look is it really worth the fight it is worth the fight because i'm tired of having him be behind the eight ball and yes uh he's now saying the right thing on the omnibus bill but he didn't when he went into the 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 group of four of the main leaders to meet with joe biden they came out of that with a cartel message of saying we need to get the appropriations process done well, okay, so then the grassroots rises up, and he's at his most vulnerable uh, from the standpoint of becoming speaker, and he gets on message. But like, for, we got to get to this point where we have a leader that is actually trying to seize opportunities as quickly as the grassroots is to be able to save our country. That's why I call a paradigm-shifting speaker, and we've got to get to that point. We have a leverage point. We have an opportunity. The fundamentals are in our direction. There's literally no chance that a Democrat is going to be elected, and there's no chance that a moderate is going to be elected. At every given moment, they require 218 votes to be able to get a speaker, and a moderate cannot go over to the other side. It's akin to switching parties. And we may disagree with moderates and have great uh, reason to, but they're not switching parties every day. There's only really been two examples of people that, for purposes of this, 
have effectively switched parties, and that is Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. They're not in office, and what happened to them? They got primaried. And so that is the fundamentals of the vote, and it's the same fundamentals that exist for a Democrat to, to, to cross over and vote for a Republican. So the cartel will put out uh, on in the media all of these uh, uh, doom and gloom scare tactics to say, you know, I'm Don Bacon, I'm really going to really do this, or Jim Clyburn, hey, man, if you need the votes, come ask Democrats. It's not real. And I think that's what people in the grassroots know is – they're very, very smart students of what's actually going on, and they're not being fooled by the way the cartel tries to mansplain them as to what they want to occur. And the fundamentals are in our, in our great favor. And I think we've got a shot that conservatives come out of this. I think Kevin McCarthy has a very uphill battle to become speaker, and I think whoever it is is going to to get their votes. I think is going to have to change how the House operates to make it less powerful. Um, and that's something that will lead to accountability, and that will end up crushing the cartel that I talk a lot about. You know, I, I love what you said, seize the opportunities as quickly as the base. This is what bothers me. It's always too little, too late. We look like the extremists. Oh, well, now this is not good enough. But, like, take the NDAA. It's like, dude, that was two, that, yeah, that was a year and a half ago. So now that it's like literally the Association for Embalmers, Okay, I have all the information on this. I have the emails even now someone sent me. It's now ubiquitous that embalmers are admitting half the bodies in America that they're seeing, they have these fibrin-like blood clots in them. Like, this is insane. And now it's like, okay, so we won't quite mandate it in the military. That should have been on the FY 2022 NDAA. And you see how easy it was. Like, yeah, why didn't you do it then? Now it now it's the vaccines themselves need to be investigated, and of course there's no promise um, from McCarthy. It's it's you know absent his thing, so we're always behind. We're always playing playing catch up. I think that's that's important. Um, I I want to get your thoughts on this. I myself was kind of waning on this a little bit just because I was more focused on the states. I think it's a dumpster fire anyway. I think we're the rhinos. There's so few of us anyway. You know, screw the federal stuff. Um, I didn't care so much. But then the reaction of these legacy conservative uh, media influencer types scared me because I said to myself, wait a minute. See, when Boehner was in charge, he didn't have much of a rapport with conservative media. So we were able to at least come in in certain circles, make it clear, like, look, this is terrible. Here's what he's doing with the budget. Here's what should be doing. Are you afraid that what they're doing with his election itself is just the tip of the iceberg that once he becomes speaker, he'll use those relationships every time to tell us legislatively and budgetarily that the pee on our leg is water. I'm very worried about it. It's one of the reasons why I believe that Kevin McCarthy cannot become speaker and that, you know, even if he cut a deal uh, the, the the bar is set so high as to whether it's in the interest of conservatives because it's not just the legacy conservative ink that uh, he has gotten built those relationships with. And, and part of that is, you know, he was better than Paul Ryan vis-a-vis Trump. And so like that bought him a lot of, of goodwill that I don't think uh, is worth as much as not having a paradigm speaker. So that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But just in just in terms of being in this town and, and knowing what's what's up and what's down, you know, 
I've, I've made a lot of calls and I have relationships throughout, you know, the town as well. And the degree to which people are personally invested in him is staggering. Oh my they have all made their investments in Kevin McCarthy. It's kind of like the old joke around, you know, about, about, uh, Darth Vader. Like he doesn't exist, um, as, as himself anymore. Like he has been, has K street, the cartel has, invested in him to such a degree that he's really a symbol of the cartel. And I think he has to, as a result, not be the speaker, because how does a, a speaker like that make the right decision on what we do about big tech? Like, we can't have that. We got to have someone yes. in real time says, I'm going to do everything we can to seize every leverage point to deal with big tech. And we can't have someone that's getting a ton of Google money or a ton of Facebook money to that has divided loyalties and that's what you get with Kevin McCarthy and that's how why he's been able to raise such extensive money from K Street as a result. So uh I think it's it's dangerous on a number of levels but it's it's why it forms my view of why this was such a big uh, uh a need given yes. where we were with the red wave. The red wave didn't materialize. We wouldn't have had this opportunity. I didn't focus on it uh because I didn't think it would be a leverage point. The minute that red wave didn't materialize you know, we wanted to be very, very out front to sh shape the fundamentals to make sure that uh, conservatives could could use this to save the country. And we believe they're doing it so far. And obviously, we also wanted to get rid of McConnell. But, you know, A, they're in the minority, so it's not as impactful. And B, the fact that I, I do kind of give McConnell credit. He does stick to his guns and uh, he's openly antagonistic to towards us and he's not going to move off of that. But then that's easier to fight. and And that's that's the thing. And there is a group of senators now kind of formally organizing to to dissent and, and, and push him to the right. Um, whereas if you co-opt the right, there's nowhere to move. But here's my concern about this battle now. I, you know, I'm watching this and I feel like if you don't put up an alternative or at least paint people's imagination with one, before the fight, it's hard to see how people could withstand the pressure, the pressure, you know, not to go into January 3rd with nothing. Do you believe there's a need to at least float some concepts of what makes sense? Or does that show your hand? Uh, I, I do think it's important. Um, you know, we're now in the execution stage. And so there are things that would allow us to execute better or worse. And I do think if conservatives had an agreed upon candidate, uh, and they have people that they are talking about. I don't, I, I'm not suggesting that they don't have a, a really strong plan. Um, but I do think we are getting to the point where we need to have someone that materializes. But again, this goes to why I believe that more need to come out publicly. They need to put McCarthy in a position where the math is crystal clear and he has to get out. And then you have an opportunity to make it so that when you suggest that who that is, that person's not immediately going on Fox News and saying, I'm not doing it, because that's where the moment that we are. Yes. But last night I put out on, on Twitter where the, what I think should be the, the person who gets to that uh, solution first is who they should give a long look to. And that is, you know, you've got to make GOP less powerful. I've talked about an independent rules committee for 10 years where – the Rules Committee becomes just like any other committee where they get a lot of say in who their members are. 
and they control the floor in a way that existed in the house. I'm not doing. I'm not pushing something that's ahistorical. This is the way the house operated before Sam Rayburn gave the house more power on behalf of a new uh, president named John Kennedy. And so I want to go back to where the rules committee with someone like a Bob Good or a Chip Roy is sitting there and is, has an independent check on what a bad majority or a bad leadership call looks like. And I would do this if I was a speaker myself. I would say, look, I, have, I understand the decisions that can be made behind closed doors when people don't have the transparency. I get it. But that's cartel governing. The only yes. way to fix that is to bind you by ceding power throughout the conference. That would decentralize it. And now you'd have a situation where you would have effectively blown up the cartel. That's what I believe the end zone should be. And I think there's a lot of members that I think could get 218 that would agree to something like that if the concept continues to get legs. So next thing, this all boils down to budget. I mean, obviously, they don't have the Senate. They don't have the White House. Um, they want to talk a lot about hearings, which, again, it's designed the same type of conservative media. They, they just want the show to get on. They want to be able to hold the hearings, have the nice Trey Gowdy-style clips, but it doesn't really go anywhere and hearings have their use, but A, it depends what you're trying to investigate, and B, if it's driven towards building a narrative like a, like a hammer towards an anvil of a budget fight. Um, and I think the states are the third part of that where they start implementing some of the things that you're demanding at a federal level and you tip the hand, tip the balance through the states, making that a reality. You have a budget bill. Obviously, we got to get you know, a budget deadline more like March rather than October. So we could immediately hold this over CDC and the FBI and the Department of Education, you know, kind of the top five, seven issues. Um, one of the arguments that that has been given in defense of McCarthy and told now is, oh, you can't just saddle him with rewriting a whole new budget for, for FY 2023. Let's wait till next year. Well, you did all the work. You did all the work. Um, you put out a budget today. We're going to have a piece up at the Blaze on this tomorrow. I want you to talk a little bit about the purpose of the budget and the uniqueness of the budget and take as much time as you need. No, we, we intentionally meant to use this leverage points. One of the reasons why we called it a fiscal year 23 budget when we're, end, we're, at, we're at the end of the, when they make those decisions is because we were building to be in a position to for them to use this leverage point and we need a new Congress to do it. So, that's part of the timing. But we're also trying to tell them, look, you can balance in 10 and you can do it. And, and I'm tired of losing, Daniel. I'm tired of budget hawks being in a cul-de-sac of futility for, for 20 years <laughs> where they approach everything from an accounting point of view and austerity where they say, OK, we both agree that we need a Section 8 housing at HUD. And so let's just figure out what we can afford and they ne there's never any political juice to that because they've never gone at the root issue of, hey, does one side actually believe that it's harmful to the country to have all of these vouchers that spread crime and, and depress property values? And there's this fair housing network that's trying to blow up single family neighborhoods. Or t let's take Department of Education where you have teacher improvement funds and you give University of Texas um, one and a half million to spend on training teachers to be able to link social emotional learning and CRT with math. So that's not about like 
training teachers to be better math teachers, you're actually pumping sewage into the schools to have Marxist revolutionaries pump out new Marxist revolutionaries in the form of your children. So what this budget is trying to do is to, for the first time, we believe in history, to give the people that are trying to deal with our fiscal house the moral high ground to know that they are going they are going after a woke and weaponized bureaucracy that is oppressed against their people, their voters, their constituents, and to link those two. And all mm. of a sudden you have the juice of culture battle linked up with the need to deal with our fiscal house and leverage points that are related to the budget. And then you have a whole new ball game. And what we're trying to do is say, get out of the cycle, which is just one long 20, 30 year shiny object of pointing to entitlements in which you don't have a vote on every year. You have a vote on appropriations every year, which funds the bureaucracy, and you don't have a vote on Medicare. So you have to create your votes on Medicare and Medicaid, and we've got a lot of reforms that uh, address and make those more realistic and, and, and reform them. But the, the beating heart of this budget is you go after the woke and weaponized bureaucracy, you have an opportunity to save the country and to do it with the moral high ground of having a delegitimized regime that exists, and then you have an opportunity to starve that regime. What I found so revolutionary is that I, I think what you you know what you're saying with this stuck on this vicious cycle is that they look at the accounting like, well, two thirds of the spending is the mandatory spending programs, only a third is discretionary. So in order to do anything, you really need to go after the entitlements, and then inevitably politically no one ever has a stomach for it, so you're not going to do it. And then they continue not just not cutting it, but they actually expand um, the discretionary spending for all the bureaucracies, uh, even when Republicans are in charge, or sometimes particularly when they're in charge. And your budget says, look, here, I'll get you to 10-year balance. And I thought you had a reasonable assumption, 2.7% GDP growth, which is higher than it's been generally. But if you would implement those policies, particularly on energy um I think that's realistic. You weren't going with like 3.54. So you got to balance in 10 years and you focus on do, – do I get the point like, like this? I want to see if you agree with this point that you look at the EPA, for example. It's $9 billion we've been spending on it. You know, and That's a drop in the bucket compared to what a $6 trillion budget. But it's not the $9 billion in, in itself, the, the, the budgetary cost, the price tag, that's the problem. It's that that is used to create a culture of bureaucrats working with outside NGOs and the World Economic Forum and ESG and Agenda 2030 to sap out hundreds of billions in inflate. I mean, inflation is all that energy, the energy crisis, um, scarcity, fewer crappy products, fewer services. Um, lost jobs. I mean, that's a force multiplier. Or CDC, you know, it's gotten a lot more funding recently, but it's not it's not tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. It's it's. I mean, what's the price tag for COVID? It's like five point five trillion in congressional spending, and then like another four point five trillion in in uh, Federal Reserve shenanigans. I mean, that's insane. So what you're saying is. By de-weaponizing, by defunding the critical FBI agencies, the critical CDC, EPA, um, you know, you 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 cut like half of HUD's budget. Um, those are the civilization killers. Those are the life, liber liberty, property issues. And then eventually, d they do become force multipliers 
for the fiscal issues as well. That's right. And so you, once you've figured out how members can win b- budget battles and make progress, it allows you to encourage them and they take on more of an ability to deal with some of the stuff that's a little bit harder or to seize new leverage points to create, hey, let's create a leverage point to deal with Food Stamp Nation. I think that's precisely right. But just let's take the EPA for a second. EPA has its own like criminal authorities. Most people don't know that. They have their own like law enforcement. Most people don't know that. Uh, they put a Navy veteran, 77-year-old Navy veteran named Joe Robertson, in jail for 18 months that was towards the end of his life for building four ponds on his ranch that he intended to fight wildfires that ran into conflict with their regulations. Like, on what planet is that American? And so people think when they are funding the EPA that they are like, okay, it's, just, it's a little unaffordable, but I'm generally getting you know bureaucrats who care about clean air and clean water. No, they're getting hyper-militant leftist activists to put Joe Robertson in jail. And that has its, you know, that that's the same in interior where you, where you have bureaucrats that are sitting on the renewal of important permits that without you all of a sudden Drake's oyster farm doesn't just literally goes away. It, it it without that permit it can't exist and as a result it goes away. Or you have the National Park Service using its money to shower money around for so-called historic LGBT sites. So like at every opportunity you look, this isn't Ronald Reagan's like version of what he was opposed in terms of liberalism. This is much more uh, woke and militant. So you look at foreign aid, and I hate foreign aid. I'd be against it if it wasn't woke. But it's not just the Bob Dylan statute in Mozambique, which is just wasteful. We're funding gay pride parades in Prague. We're funding LGBT activist training in Ecuador. We're funding um, or Senegal, and we're funding drag queen performances in Ecuador. So think about from our foreign policy what that looks like. Does that increase uh, the, the, our, our opportunity for diplomacy? No. My guess is it actually worsens our opportunity for diplomacy, because if I was in those countries, I would be saying, get your dollars out of my country. And so that's trying, we're, we're trying to approach it at that level to figure out, okay, it's what time it is in this country. We're losing our country. What's the dollars that are being spent? And I, and I would push back on those who would say, you know, we've got to use Leviathan against us. And I just don't think that we can use Leviathan for us because I don't think it's made up. There's not enough conservatives out there no. to fill all these jobs no. to be able to think like Daniel Horowitz would do if he was the chief of staff at the Center for Disease Control. No, it, it took three years just at a state level for DeSantis to start doing that in a few departments. Um, and, and someone of his magnitude, which really doesn't exist anywhere else. And it, again, it took a while yet to, to fire the shallow state and then deal with the deep state there at a federal level. I mean, no, that's that's not going to happen. Um, and, and again, it will have an article out tomorrow. So you guys will be able to see the top line numbers and, and what this looks like. But but again, you know, I, I don't like food stamp dependency, but I don't think it's destroying the country. It's not like the homosexual agenda and the transgender stuff and the biomedical security state and the spying and the surveillance and the violation of human rights. And that's the stuff that matters. That's the stuff that's unpopular. I would rather go into a budget brinkmanship battle and have your budget 
and say, look, this is it. You message it every day from now until whenever that deadline would be, let's say March 1st. And are, are you going to shut down the government to fund cutting off people's you-know-what? Are you going to fund masking and, and the biomedical security state and pharma's greed where Pfizer makes more profit than, than, than ExxonMobil to produce a dangerous product that, that serves no function, right? Rather than John Thune and these Republicans like, hey, let's hold up the debt ceiling over Social Security. Like, what are you, what are you smoking? You're getting the vision of this. I mean, we can't be able to deal with our fiscal issues without brinksmanship and confrontation that are come from being willing to wake, walk away from a bad deal and appropriation. That's going to lead to some degree of shutdowns. I, if, if I was Kevin McCarthy, I would embrace it and say, look, I'm going to be the speaker, the shutdown speaker. If I'm really getting the possibilities of what's necessary. Yep. And when you, when that occurs, you've got the confrontation of the national news media leftist as it is, to tune in and what do you want the framing to be do you want it to be about the like one both parties agree that section 8 should occur should should be funded and we're agreeing because you're at a billion dollar difference or do you want one of them to be saying look we we're tired of the CDC being so bloated by their focus on 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 going after STDs in this country when everyone knows how you ensure that you don't have the prevalence of STDs. Instead, we actually want them to be focused on, on fighting infectious diseases. So instead of that billion and a half that we think is just a waste of money, we're going to put it towards a, a reform of the program to make sure it can't be done what Tony Fauci and it did during this COVID pandemic. That's the, the, that's the debate you want to have. That's the debate you want to talk about. You at HUD, all these fair housing networks that are blowing up single-family homes, and you have le- liberals and conservatives in neighborhoods across the country going to battle against this effort. That's that's Those are the issues you want to nationalize. I love that. You make a big deal out of that Section 8 issue. I haven't talked about it here for a while, but I know electorally, man, you can't get a better issue than that. That's one of those issues where the GOP elites are like, oh, my God, I'll be called racist, and they run away from it. But everyone else, you look at a map of where we're losing, those Atlanta suburbs in Gwinnett County, um, the suburban areas of Phoenix, of, of Vegas, um, of, of Milwaukee, right? The, I mean, that's really where everyone's talking about the presidential election being decided. It is literally those type of voters i mean nobody wants that nobody wants that except for these ngos that hud works with and um it's it's you got to expend your political capital wisely you got to look i'm i view your budget as like a, a life raft you know we could talk about maybe the guy has diabetes and it needs work maybe he has some you know long-term problems maybe he needs his vitamin d levels up but right now he's going to go underwater and you got to get him out of there and i don't think social security is killing us also, just want to get your thoughts on like Medicare, Medicaid. I always viewed it that because of Obamacare, but even all the original sin of healthcare, the whole insurance cartel with the tax exclusion, we created a broken cartel system that destroyed medicine. And we certainly saw that with COVID, it, it, it wasn't just a funding issue. It was a life and death issue. It's the biggest pro-life issue of our time in my, in my view. So, you can't force people into a system and then give them the impression that you know they're they're not going to be able to afford it. Doesn't that have to be dealt with more long term, building healthcare freedom broadly and building a parallel system that eventually would 
replace Medicare, which we all know is garbage anyway, and Medicaid is is horrible. I mean, it's horrible coverage. It's they're they're stigmatized. They don't. I mean, they don't get anything good out of it. Doesn't that have to be done more backhandedly? Well, I think what you can do in these programs is to make reforms along the way. And so like our approach in Social Security and Medicare for beneficiaries was just, just to hold them harmless, uh, both politically but also because you know our, they've been paying into a system that they thought was a dedicated trust fund, and then the, the cartel spent all the money on growing their bureaucracy. And so I actually think that politically there is an argument, not, not just like – it's harder to, for the for a political coalition to do something, but I think there's some of a fairness argument that has lot, not been explored. But to your point on like Medicaid, like we can there's a, about a quarter of Medicaid is just improper spending and scams to states where they just basically figure out a way to get more reimbursements and then they give they they take that money for their own funding. So like 509 billion dollars in Medicaid is is that kind of reforms. Another one is, you know, we pay 50% of whatever state wants to do. So it's this massive subsidy to blue states to have these ridiculous uh, uh, Medicaid programs that give money to illegal aliens and do gender transition surgeries. And so even if you just remove that massive money, $653 billion in savings, and you have made a major mark on the ability to be able to get our fiscal house in order. So that's how we approached it. We didn't look at it from the standpoint, oh man, you know, we got to go with the, where the money is at. We 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 looked at what what good policy would look like and we came up with reforms that were consistent with that. And and oh by the way, I just want to say like families don't look at their their books when they're trying to deal with their fiscal house and say, oh, man, we got to go for the mortgage because that's where the money is at. No, they go after discretionary spending, out to eat, entertainment, stuff that they can actually control. And then over time, to your point, they make adjustments about what I would call the immovables. You know, they they might invest slightly less in the kids in uh, child and college investment, or they might refi the, the home mortgage. But that's not what they do on day one to get started. They don't go out to eat. They, they, they have a cheaper family vacation. That's the kind of thing that we are saying there's just been a total divorce of common sense and practicality by budget hawks for the last 20, 30 years because they've been listening to Paul Ryan and, and others like that for so long. It's the policies that matter more than the top-line spending numbers, and they will flow downstream from the policies and the culture. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so uh, let's see where to follow you. AmericaRenewing.com is the website. You can find the budget there. And at Russ Vote V-O-U-G-H-T on Twitter. Russ, it was so much fun. We got to do this again. Thanks, Daniel. Take care. God bless. And folks, that is going to do it for today. You can email me at danielhurwitz at startmail.com. Um, those of you who are listening to this, Ron Johnson on his Rumble page has a nine-hour roundtable. So it will be archived after the fact, I, I assume, nine-hour roundtable streaming on vaccine injury and understanding vaccines. Um, look, that was a terrific presentation from Russ on the speaker's fight following the issues that matter and the way they matter at the time they matter. And, and again, like sometimes, you know, we debate things in the abstract. Oh, this is not achievable. This isn't. He literally wrote a budget, a full budget um, that they could adopt. 
And it doesn't mean just to vote on it. Republicans in the House undoubtedly will vote on a pretty decent budget. But here's what they're going to do. They'll vote for it, won't stand behind it, and make it very clear that um, you know, when the Senate, Senate's inevitably going to balk at it, then they'll, they'll agree to what the Senate wants. No. You make it clear, this is our thing. We can negotiate other points, but on the Fourth Reich issues, we will not fund that. We will not fund woke and weaponized bureaucracies. That's done. We will not fund um, cutting off kids' balls. We will not fund the biomedical security state violating the, violating the privacy, um, the medical freedom, and literally the life and health of American citizens. That will not happen. And you make it very clear, um, we don't care about a budget deadline. And remember, we just went through as a nation a shutdown of humanity. So you think we care about a shutdown of discretionary spending? No one even notices in their lives when the stupid government shuts down, except for the government workers. And again, they always get back pay retroactive and get a pre- free paid vacation, you know, Crimea River. So send me your questions and concerns for Russ at Daniel Hurwitz at startmail.com. Until tomorrow, God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.